In an evangelical church today, it's very encouraging to see a growing emphasis on expositional preaching, on sound doctrine, on the gospel. But there's also a danger that we face, the danger of saying the right things, but not living in accord with our words. There's a danger of embracing gospel doctrine while at the same time neglecting a truly gospel-shaped church culture. In today's interview, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry to discuss this connection between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. They share what it can look like when a church is theologically careful, but culturally sick, and why our willingness to be honest with each other and our eagerness to share honor to our brothers and sisters in Christ can reveal a lot about how healthy our churches really are. Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry are both pastors at Emmanuel Nashville Church and canon theologians with the Anglican Church in North America. They're both authors of numerous books, including their newest book together, You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Weary Churches, from Crossway. Let's get started. Sam and Ray, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be with you. So in our circles, evangelical, reformed, high view of scripture, it's not uncommon to hear people emphasize the importance of sound doctrine and the centrality of the gospel. I mean, we're recording this interview right now at the Gospel Coalition Conference, surrounded by, I don't know, 6,000 people who are here because they love the gospel and they see the importance of the gospel. Uh, I know that's not characteristic of all Christians in the U.S., of all churches in the U.S. There are many churches that don't prioritize those things, but we're surrounded by people who do. And yet, Sam, as you warn in this new book that you guys have written together, it's possible to be theologically careful and even gospel-centered and yet still be seriously sick. Sick in what way? So yeah, a few years ago, I had a, a bit of a revelation reading through First Timothy. And in chapter 5, Paul is talking about care for, for widows, and he broadens it out to talk about our, our obligations for our own families. And he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. And I had seen the category of denying the faith previously in the Bible, but it had always been in the context of people denying the truth of the resurrection or denying some key tenets like that. What Paul was showing me is there's more than one way to fall. Mm. Um, You can fall doctrinally, but he's also saying here, if if you're not living out the love that the gospel is, is putting into our hearts, then you are also denying the faith that way. So you can be someone who is on one level creedly orthodox, but in the case of First Timothy 5, if you're not providing for your relatives or members of your household, you're still denying the faith at the level of behavior, not at the level of what you profess to believe. Mm. So Ray, anyone who's listened to you for any length of time knows that you're passionate about seeing gospel doctrine create gospel culture. I thought you were going to say about deer hunting, but that, that, that as well. <laughs> got the gospel too. stuff too. Yeah. You're passionate about that as well. Uh, we can see that on your Instagram feed. <laughs> so, so if you were going to define both of those terms, gospel doctrine and gospel culture, how would you do that in just a couple sentences? Yeah, thank you. Well, it's great to be with you, Matt, and with Sam on this podcast. And we wrote this book, You're Not Crazy, to answer those questions and to commend to every listener's conscience as a matter of sacredness in the presence of God. 
clarity and joy about these very central glorious realities. What is gospel doctrine? Gospel doctrine is good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit, received with the empty hands of faith. That message, that doctrine, does not hang in midair as a, a, a mere abstraction. Important as doctrinal subscription is, and that really does matter. So, by the way, what Sam and I are not saying in this book is something like, as we've all heard people say, it doesn't really matter what we believe as long as we love each other. Mm. Excuse me, that is a belief, mm. and it is not biblical or apostolic. Jesus did not teach that. Mm. And it is gospel doctrine that creates and sustains real love for one another. So gospel doctrine is essential, but not merely abstract. What does it do? It's a generative power that creates beauty among us. That is the whole point. When we actually allow gospel doctrine to work with its own native authority and built-in tendencies, when we allow it to exert the influence God wants it to have among us, we go to a profound place in our relationships with one another that Sam and I are trying to describe with this simple phrase, gospel culture. Culture uh, is... Doctrine we can define clearly. You can write it down. Yeah. You, it, it, the words, the choice of words really, really matters. Culture is intangibles, vibe, tone, posture. It's an experience, and it's a delicate experience, and it's a beautiful experience. And the doctrine is meant to open the door for us to walk together into those green pastures and beside those still waters. And when we go there under the authority of the doctrine, then our, the world can not only hear the gospel in our message, but the world can see the gospel in our community, hmm. our experience of community together. Sam and I long for this. Ray, you just used the word allow a few times, that we need to allow the gospel doctrine to then uh, make this change in our own hearts and in the, our culture that we, we enjoy as Christians. Um, that seems to imply that there are ways that we could theoretically embrace the doctrine and not allow it to make those changes in us. Um, what might that look like? Well, um, yesterday, Sam and I did a, a micro event here at uh, the Gospel Coalition, and we showed on the screens this sort of very disturbing photograph of a church from our country in the 1920s. And on the wall of the back of the church, up behind the pulpit, is a big banner that says, Jesus saves. Okay, that's doctrine. We love that doctrine. That's true. We agree with that church. Jesus really does save. But the problem is that standing in a place of honor up in front of the congregation there in this photograph are about 30 or 35 clansmen mm. in their robes. Now that's, the doctrine is Jesus saves, we agree with that. The culture of that church is white supremacy. We abhor that. And I have to guess that the people in that church were not thinking, uh, hypothetically, we agree that Jesus saves, but at a practical level in our relationships, we deny that Jesus yeah. saves. We are a living denial of the very message we preach from the pulpit. When a church, and Matt, 
it's not just a, a, a you know an egregious obvious example because like it's that. easy to look at that and think well yeah they were just obviously so misled so yeah. deceived but that doesn't happen to me well that's why Galatians 2, 1 Timothy 5, really landed on Sam. Galatians 2 was the passage that got up in my face. Galatians 2, 11 through 21, where the Apostle Paul chews out the Apostle Peter, and which alerts that, and the issue is gospel culture. And Paul is saying to Peter, by your behavior, it says their conduct was not in step with the truth mm. of the gospel. Mm. And Paul says, I saw that their conduct. Peter hadn't changed his message, his preaching, but he had changed his relationships with Gentile uh, new believers. And Paul saw that as a doctrinal betrayal. And he makes the case in this paragraph for the foundational uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. If all we need to be fully legit and kosher in the sight of God is Jesus received with the empty hands of faith, who does Peter think he is than to reintroduce and require the kosher laws of the book of Leviticus with Jesus himself fulfilled hmm. by his cleanness? So betraying gospel doctrine by betraying gospel culture is not only a problem for Klansmen. In the first century here in Antioch, it was an apostolic problem. Hmm. No surprise then that it's mm. sometimes a problem among us today. We have got to keep our eyes peeled. There's a, a wonderful postscript to that because the, the way Paul did that, we don't know exactly what that looked like. The footage would have been fascinating. Yes. But I, I, it just occurred to me at the end of Second Peter, um, so mm. years after this, Peter refers to Paul as our beloved brother, mm. Paul. And so Peter's, Peter evidently received that in the right spirit, allowed the Lord to correct him through Paul's rebuke. Um, so you see something of the, the outworking of gospel culture from Peter's later references to Paul and, and how much Paul means to him. Mm. There was no rift between them beyond that moment. Here's what's at stake. Excuse me, Matt, for interrupting you. You were about to speak, no, no. but I always interrupt Sam, so it, we just understand this together. <laughs> <laughs> Here's why this matters so much. In the Gospels, Peter denies Christ to secure his physical survival, as he understands it in the moment. Here in Galatians 2, in Antioch, Peter denies Christ again for the sake of his ecclesiastical survival. Mm -hmm. Because he says here, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they showed up, boy, did he backpedal. So Peter was getting the message. You know that conference we invited you to preach at in Jerusalem next year? You can be uninvited, buddy. Mm. You just watch your step. And Peter caved. Twice, Paul calls his behavior hypocrisy. What's at stake here is our integrity before the Lord, our beauty with one another, so that Sam and I wrote this book, You're Not Crazy, with a deep sense of conviction, and urgency. We feel that, that there's a gift the Lord wants to give this generation, that we're just at the front end of sort of discovering. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're praying actually for just awakening and revival. It also strikes me that kind of underlying this whole book, this whole project, this whole emphasis is a really 
keen awareness of our propensity, even as Christians, sincere, true Christians, to deceive ourselves. That we can, we can tell ourselves and really think, I believe the right things. I, my doctrine is solid. And yet we can live in such a way that we deny that doctrine. Yeah, but professing sound doctrine is essential, mm-hmm. but it's not on its own sufficient. Mm. Because, you know, the New Testament shows us that the demons professed sound doctrine on one level. You know, the demons believe in one God. At least they shudder. So it's not merely enough to be saying the right things at some official theological level. The sign that that truth has really come into the depths of our heart is that we're different because of it. And what is true of us individually is true of us communally. A sign that we as as a Christian community in a local church have deeply received the love of Jesus is that it changes our collective behavior, not merely our private individual behavior. Mm. And Matt, here's another way to, let me flip it into a positive assertion. It, the danger is truly alarming and real and always present. But on the other hand, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, and Machen, J. Gresham Machen, in his commentary on Galatians, says that 2.21 is the key verse to the whole book of Galatians. Paul says to Peter, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's insinuating that Peter is nullifying the grace of God and trivializing the cross of Christ. But, and it's so understandable to me, but what if we take the risk, we pastors take the risk of magnifying the grace of God? What if we move all our chips over onto that square, so to speak? What if we dare to give ourselves permission to believe all out and wholeheartedly in the grace of God and lay everything in our ministries on the line, following the vector of the grace of God as far as it will go? Could we take that risk? Mm. Could we join Paul in magnifying the grace of God and honoring the cross of Christ as truly sufficient? Could we stop worrying about the grace of God? Could we stop fearing the grace of God? and rejoice in it and put everything on the line for the, for the lifting up and honoring of the grace of God and the finished work of Christ mm-hmm. on the cross. <clears throat> the, the implications are, are startling and glorious and worth reaching for. Mm-hmm. Ray, do you ever worry that, at least in our circles, the, the prevalence of this gospel-centered language, gospel this, gospel that, that that has accidentally served to water down our understanding of the gospel itself, our appreciation of what we're actually talking about. Yes, because we corrupt everything. So this, the, over the last 20 years or so, we've seen a sort of renaissance of gospel thinking in this uh, American evangelical, British evangelical world that we all live in, and we're so profoundly grateful. 20 years ago, and it was really uh, sparked by sermons by Tim Keller that I was listening to. I went through my own gospel renaissance. I I rediscovered justification by faith alone, substitution, imputation, union with Christ, and so forth. These glorious truths. I was captivated and messed with in the most wonderful way. So I celebrate and rejoice in the very thing you're talking about, Matt. Can we become oblivious and insensitive to the very thing we're talking about? Yes. So I I don't know what else to do except just cry out to God. Lord, deliver us from ourselves. Help us to understand what we ourselves are talking about mm. Mm. And, and treat Jesus as real. 
I think another aspect to this, um, Jesus says to the, the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you have eternal life. And, and most of us would think, that's great. They're diligently studying the Bible. Right. Would that more people were doing that? They believe that eternal life is at stake. Excellent. Then Jesus says, the scriptures testify about me, but you do not come to me. So it is possible to be a, a real scripture person, to believe how serious scripture is, how serious truth is, and not be coming to Jesus. Mm. That's frightening. Mm. That's really frightening. And one of the dangers of our rediscovery of all this wonderful theology is that we can start to love theology for its own sake. We can love being right more than we love the Lord. Mm. And that can look like orthodoxy because we're making sure we're right. But it means we, we can be right without being loving, which actually means we're wrong. Mm. So this is another way of, of trying to catch us out <laughs> uh, with that danger. And one of the reasons we love thinking about this and writing about this is because our own hearts have a tendency to do that. There have been times in my Christian life and ministry where I've been a bit more concerned with just getting the theology right than actually loving the people I'm, I'm meant to be serving. Mm. So it's a something we all need to keep looking at. So let's talk about some of the marks, the key marks of a gospel culture. You guys highlight a number of these in the book. We can only look at a couple of them, but one of them that stood out to me was honesty. Uh, Sam, why is honesty such an important litmus test for whether or not a church is truly cultivating a gospel culture? Yeah, there, there are many ways to answer that question. The, the answer that I, I think most quickly comes to my mind is that, that the gospel makes it safe for God to know the worst things about me. There is no condemnation now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that really is the case, I don't need to wear a, a kind of fake Christian mask when I go to church. If we're all a community of people whom God has forgiven, if we're all, in the language of Paul, the worst of sinners, and yet Christ has shown grace to us, then we, we shouldn't be sort of trying to act at church as if, oh, well, my life is together and I'm, I'm really doing okay, when we're not. Because the, the, the gospel calls our bluff, in one sense. It, it's Jesus showing us what we're really like, and we, repentance is coming to terms with what we're really like, and then receiving all this undeserved beautiful grace and love from, from God. So that, that should work itself out horizontally in a culture where we, we now have that sense of relief in finally being able to drop the pretense and being real with each other. Um, James 5.16 has, has become one of my favorite verses where he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, so we don't merely confess to God I find it easier to confess to God than to, mm -hmm. to Ray, because God already, God already knows the worst things about me. Ray, Ray doesn't. And, and we're secure, in some sense, in God's acceptance of us. But yeah. sometimes we wonder, what's that other person going to do? Yeah, yeah there's, there's more face to lose at the horizontal level. Um, but James says, confess your sins to one another. We, we need to do that. Um, and it, it's healing for us when we do. And it, what we're talking about with honesty is not what our culture calls authenticity, where I just, you know, I've taken my personality type and I, I know my foibles and I, I put those on the table in a kind of defiant way mm. and say, this is just the way I am. 
you've got to you've got to bend to my idiosyncrasies. Though James is not just saying share your quirky brokenness, he's saying confess your sins. We're talking at the category of sin and confession and being prayed for because of these things. There's a way of, of doing a sort of a fake honesty where we're basically allowing for each other's being a jerk. I've seen that dynamic at work and that that is not what we're talking about here. Honesty is not just this is the kind of stuff I do and this is the kind of person I am, but honesty is actually honesty about how that how ugly that is before mm. the Lord. Yeah. So Ray, if this is so intimately tied to the gospel itself, this willingness to be honest before God but also before other believers, why is it that our churches so often feel like the place where we can be the least honest about how we're really doing? Mm. Well, that's a searching question. It's a disturbing question. It's a good question. And as a pastor, I would have to say, I, I feel that I am personally, to some measure, responsible for this anomaly. I think Paul in Galatians 2 would use the word hypocrisy. For so many years, I'm, I made the mistake of finding a box of hard copy sermons I preached in the 1980s, a couple of years ago. Then I made a second mistake of actually reading a couple of them. <laughs> and they were horrible. <clears throat> I was doing what I thought was right at the time. It, it, it was all I knew. But basically, my ministry, as I understood it, was to open up the Bible, my preaching, open up the Bible, preach expositionally, and help these sorry Christians get it together. And so it was a ministry of challenge. It was a ministry of instruction. It was a ministry of correction. And there's something good about all of that. But I honestly did not understand the suffering that people were walking into church with. I didn't understand the experience of impasse and uh, defeat and so forth. That's the baggage everybody's carrying into church. I thought I was dealing with basically well put together human beings. And I saw myself that way ridiculously, who just needed to polish this and that. That premise inadvertently but effectively created a culture of appearances. But what if we all understand we're walking into church with nothing but need and we're opening up the empty hands of faith before the all-sufficient Christ? Well, if that's the premise, if that's the reality of it, then we can talk about anything we can put out on the table with one another what's really going on. And ultimately, I believe, the honesty that Sam's been talking about, that we talk about in the book, it's really an outcome from humility. I'm trying to remember, Sam, uh, whether it was uh, Charles Simeon who said the foundation of our faith or the major premise of our faith, however he put it, is one, humility, two, humility, three, Humility. Yeah, I remember the quote. I can't remember who, who wrote it. I know it's in your son Gavin's book somewhere. <laughs> it may have been someone earlier than Simeon. But I believe that. Yeah. And I think we all believe that. 
But if, as I am ministering, serving, preaching scripture and so forth, if a feeling sneaks into my heart that it's my very orthodoxy, my very biblicism that makes me superior, then in that moment, my, the problem is not I'm believing the gospel, believing the doctrine and taking it too seriously. The problem is I'm not really believing it at all, at least not at a conviction level. There's a difference between an opinion and a conviction. An opinion is a belief I have that floats on the surface of my mind. Eric Clapton is the greatest guitarist of all time. <laughs> okay, now that's my opinion. I actually believe it's true, yeah. but that's an opinion. A conviction is a more profound reality. It's where I'll stake my life. And if my orthodoxy is only of the nature of opinion, it can actually feed my pride. But when my orthodoxy percolates down to the level of conviction, and the glory of Christ actually gets through to me existentially and personally, that is more profound. Then I'm humbled. And that cracks my heart open, Matt, to be a real friend to you, whatever that might cost me. Now we're finally getting somewhere. Yeah. And, and as the story of finding those sermons can testify to, the pastors and church leaders play a unique role. They have a unique power, a shaping power on their churches when it comes to cultivating this culture of honesty uh, among them. I, I wonder, Sam, though, sometimes pastors can say, I've heard pastors say this to me, that I know that I need accountability. I know that I need to be honest with people in my church. That is an important facet of our lives as Christians. And yet, I feel like I can't do that with people in my church because I'm the pastor. And if I share what I'm really struggling with, if, I, if I'm really honest with them about stuff, uh, they're not going to respect me. It's going to undercut my ministry. It's going to cause them to even not trust me in different ways. And so m maybe there's people outside of my church that I can kind of be honest with, but I really can't do that in my church. How would you respond to a pastor who kind of worries about that? Yeah, it's a very legitimate worry. I, I get it. Um, and what we're not talking about is in the pulpit, bearing your soul about everything all the time. That would actually be burdening your congregation. There's an appropriate honesty in the pulpit and there's an inappropriate kind of honesty. So there may be people that you share your, your deepest, most personal things with outside the church. That, that can be a very healthy, useful thing to have. But part of Christian leadership is that we are, we're not just leading in truth and understanding, we're leading in repentance. And people need to learn repentance from how we lead. And some of that is going to be reflected in the way we preach. Um, Paul talks to Timothy about the importance of, of the people seeing his progress. So Timothy is not meant to be presenting himself as if, yeah, I've, I, know, I know how everything works. I've got the Christian life sorted out. Timothy is meant to be presenting himself as a shepherd who is also still a sheep. Because as, as church leaders, we're also church members. We're still Christian pilgrims ourselves. And so part of what we're leading people in is, is how to be following Jesus, how to be progressing towards Jesus. And that means that at times it, it is really appropriate to say, as and when it's applicable, to say, you know, this, this passage has really changed my thinking on this. Mm. I, I think I had this wrong over the years. Or this text has, has made me realize how, just how irritable I can be. Because what we're doing then is we're, we're modeling how to, sh to people how the, how the Bible convicts us of sin and, and reassures us of grace and how that grace changes our hearts to want to, to live for Christ. 
And as we do that in, in the appropriate ways, we're, we're making it easier and safer for other people to start to share the things that they're needing to grow in as well. Mm. Right. Have you seen that dynamic as well in your own church and ministry over the years where your willingness to be honest has opened the door for others in the church to do the same? Yes. Um, and I think what Sam just said is very wise because there is a kind of honesty that really is self-display that mm. changes the subject from Jesus and his gospel of grace to me and my issues. That's not what we are commending. The congregation is not there to be our, our therapist. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Ray, I remember our, our pastor TJ mentioned one of the early sermons he heard you preach at Emmanuel. I don't know what the passage was. The passage evidently touched at some point on sexual sin and you apparently began your sermon by saying your pastor is a sexual sinner hmm. and you then reassured them and said don't worry I'm not cheating on my wife I'm not looking at porn but you said apparently if you knew the thoughts that went through my mind you might not want to be my friend mm -hmm. and if I've reflected that correctly TJ said that that was kind of a paradigm shift for him because you were being appropriately honest, not inappropriately. You were being honest in a way that opened up conversation, not that made people worried about you, um, but you then made it easier for other people to then start to begin that just vital process, particularly today, of being able to talk about their own sexual sin. Mm -hmm. Yes, and in, especially in Nashville, we have our own local religion in Nashville. It's the worship of appearances. Everyone on Nashville is on stage performing. Hmm. Our heaven, our doctrine of heaven in Nashville is getting rave reviews. Our doctrine of hell is being uh, panned or even just ignored. And our salvation is performing really impressively. And I suppose it's just human nature. It's the world all over. But what if there is one community in that world of false religion and self-exaltation concealing self-hatred and shame and defeat. What if there's one community that flips that and actually is, is unashamed, not thrown into existential crisis by owning up to our actual failings with one another in appropriate settings and inappropriate ways. But here's what I believe, Matt. Every one of us as Christians must have one or two friends in the same city or town in which we live who know those friends know what we're really facing. They know how we're really doing, including how we're not doing well. Mm. We don't trot this out in front of everybody, but there is real uh, transparency. I don't use the word accountability, Matt, because I've seen the category accountability used in a bullying and coercive uh, way to corner people and pressure people and belittle them. But transparency is mutual. So two or three Christian friends getting together regularly and walking together in transparency, living in James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We've got to be there. Every single one of us must have friends like that. If we don't believe in the Roman Catholic confessional, and I don't, and I hope nobody does still James 5:16 is not going away mm. that that confessional taps into something that we need yes that the true confession of our sin to another human so how do we do that okay we're protestants 
And if we don't like the Roman Catholic confessional, how are we going to obey mm. James 5.16? Mm. Yeah. Sam, another key mark of gospel culture is an eagerness to show honor to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this one stood out to me a lot because I don't typically think of showing honor to other Christians as a priority for me when I walked into church on a Sunday morning. I don't think of that as like, this is a goal that I should have, is to intentionally honor the people around me. Share a little bit more about why that is so important and what that even looks like practically. Yeah, that, in one sense, that's, that's very easy because it, the Bible tells us to. So Romans 12 verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, it, it's part of how we love each other with brotherly affection is that we want to honor each other. And what Paul means by showing honor is, because he gives us an example of this himself with Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, it, it's showing the ways in which people are evidencing the presence of Christ in their lives. Maybe something they've done, maybe in something of, of the way that they are. It's a way of pointing out in someone else's life, either to them or about them, to others, ways in which we're seeing Jesus making a tangible difference to the way that they are. It's, let's all high five over what, what Ray's just done, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So Paul says we, we need to show honor. He says in Philippians to honor such men as these. So it is right for us to esteem publicly those who are those who really are letting Christ change them. Here, Paul says, not just to show honor, but to outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, this is not token. This is not the sort of, you know, begrudgingly do this a little bit. Outdo one another in this. Hmm. Ray's often pointed out this is the one place in the Bible we're told to be competitive. <laughs> and the, the more we are, the, the more everybody wins because we're competing to put the spotlight of, of how a spotlight of amazingness on other people around us. And our, if our fallen tendency is firstly not to confess our sins, but to try and, and show the Instagram version of our, of our Christianity, another part of our tendency is to, is to seek honor from others rather than seeking to give honor to others. Mm. So I think the flip side of being real about our own sins is that we're also being real about one another's sanctification. Mm and the ways we see that happening in in real time around us. Mm. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, Paul said earlier in chapter 12, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. The flip side is not thinking of other people more lowly than we ought to think. And honoring one another is a way of not thinking I'm the big deal in the room, but actually thinking, look at how Matt is is serving us so faithfully with his Crossway podcast. It, it's putting the attention on other people and, and not seeking glory ourselves. Mm. Then it, it deflects away from our own our own egos, our own self importance. Yeah, Ray, what's the difference between showing honor and flattery? Mm-hmm. It's an important question. Flattery is <clears throat> is basically lying with a smile, mm. and it can't be trusted shouldn't be respected. Flattery is making something up. And it's also tends to be general and vague. You're awesome. You're amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Um, But honor is 
noticing something real about someone. Colossians chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That glory is showing up right now. I mean, here we are sitting around this table. Every single one of us is, is a flawed, needy, high-maintenance sinner. <laughs> and we're going to heaven. We're not going to hell anymore. And Jesus actually indwells us, and he's becoming obvious. Y'all are not hard to read. Well, that's amazing. Let, that's truly awesome. Let's celebrate that. Let's notice that. Let's talk about that and encourage one another in this way. Just this morning, I was coming down here at the hotel, coming down in the elevator, and one of the Crossway team walked in, got in at another floor. Turned out he was part of the crew behind the scenes helping to create this book, You're Not Crazy. I hadn't met him before, and I, I felt within... Me. I mean, Sam and I have our names on the cover, but the reality is there are many people whose names are not on the cover who helped create that book. Artists, editors, typesetters, podcasters, and so forth, videographers, they all deserve to be noticed and lifted up. Mm. And uh, when we feel that sense of indignation within until, you know, Matt and, and Maggie feel encouraged and noticed and seen, I, I think that's what the gospel creates in us, an urgency to make sure people are noticed and encouraged. Because mm. we all know this life is not easy, and living for Christ in this world is not easy. We're going to get through this, but one of the ways the Lord's going to get us through this is by putting us together as a body of mutual encouragement and honor and helping each other just keep taking the next step. Mm. I'm just struck by the, the pairing of a culture of honesty paired with a culture of honor. That has the potential to unleash such a power, such a, a dynamism in the life of a church, in the life of a ministry or organization, in our own lives, a family's life. When you have those two things paired together, it allows us to live openly and truly and joyfully knowing that not just God has accepted us for who we are, it, all of our failings and weaknesses, but other Christians as well, we all see the Lord's work in each other's lives and yeah. can actually live together. It is so freeing not to need to be impressive anymore. Yeah. It's relaxing. Hmm. We can be impressive or we can be known, but we can't be both. So this new book that you guys have written together, You're Not Crazy, it shares a name with the podcast that you two co-host together. Uh, Ray, I wonder if you could share, where did that title come from? It sounds like a Ray Ortland title. <laughs> well, gosh, Sam, I don't remember. who. I, I do. You came up with the title, You're Not Crazy, because those three words have been so life-giving um, to each of us. I, me I remember one of the first times we met, I was in a... A difficult place, things were feeling off, struggling with, with aspects of church culture and, and that kind of thing, and, and was trying to articulate that, and you just said to me, you're not crazy. Hmm. In other words, you're not crazy for feeling as, as though something's amiss, when on the one hand, there's what seems to be doctrinal soundness, but on the other hand, there isn't emotional health, there isn't honesty, people are coming to church fearfully, and... <laughs> wondering what they're going to get hit with this week. Mm. You're not crazy. And you, you were the one who said we should call the podcast You're Not Crazy. 
Mm-hmm. Ray, what have been some of the main through lines, main comments or types of questions that you guys have received over the last few years from listeners of the podcast? What's the, the feedback that you've been receiving on this stuff? Well, I think, Sam, both of us have been really astonished at the response. I underestimated the urgency that people mm. feel about discovering gospel doctrine, creating gospel culture. Mm. And I underestimated the readiness of so many pastors and church leaders to go there. So, I, Matt, I think in God's mercy, we've just come through 20 years of doctrinal rejuvenation. Mm. I am so grateful. Here at the Gospel Coalition, walk through the, uh, the book displays uh, that are for sale. I, we live in an embarrassment of riches. You guys at Crossway are hitting one home run after another, offering the world these fantastic books. We are so rich, and we are all so grateful. Mm. Now, we are ready to take the next step and let that very gospel have its full effect upon us. Let's believe it with all our hearts and let that gospel accomplish in us and among us the the very thing God sent it to accomplish, namely to create the beauty of human relationships. Hmm. I think we're ready and the response is very encouraging. Hmm. Praise God. Ray, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with us and uh, yeah, cast this vision for gospel doctrine, creating gospel culture, uh, not just in our churches, but in our own lives as individuals as well. We appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. That was Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry on cultivating a gospel culture in your church. For more, be sure to check out their book with Crossway, You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Weary Churches. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org/plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.